This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m. in Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Welcome to the Climate Action Radio Show, which can be heard on Community Radio 3CR in Melbourne and Skid Row in Sydney. My name is Vivian Langford, and salut Babette. We'd like to pay our respects to elders past and present and pay tribute to the decades-long legacy of Aboriginal fights for land rights and against the destructive mining projects that are fueling climate change. In particular, we acknowledge the Wangan and Jagalingu cultural custodians and their ongoing opposition to coal mining on their lands in central Queensland, and to the Gomorrah traditional custodians continuing opposition to coal and gas on their land in New South Wales. It is vital at this late stage in history that we all learn to care for country. It will always be Aboriginal land, and now is our time to all stand up for and protect it. Go back! We don't approve! These are the words from Bangladeshi artists demanding that the mega company General Electric does not bring in more gas-fueled power to Bangladesh. We will talk to Munira Chowdhury from Market Forces about what is at stake. The fossil fuel industry made $4 trillion last year. The world must now phase out fossil fuels in the era of boiling. This was Antonio Gutierrez, Secretary General of the United Nations. And in every country, without exception, civil society voices must be heard. They must be at the table helping to shape policy and on the ground helping to deliver change. All of this action must be global, it must be immediate, and it must start with the polluted heart of the climate crisis, the fossil fuel industry. And to understand why radical climate action is needed, we decided to find out about the AMOC. Simon Walker speaks to Danish mathematician Suzanne Ditlevsen. She warns us about a major tipping element in the climate system. The collapse of the AMOC would have severe impacts on the North Atlantic. And thank you to Simon for this magnificent contribution. It's real knowledge he's conveying to us here. But first we go to Canberra. The message is becoming clearer, but exports of fossil fuels are still rising. So what about this idea of state capture? We often hear that our members of parliament have been bought by the coal, oil and gas lobbyists. So in our parliament on the 7th of August, Senator Monique Ryan proposed a way to cut back the lobbyists' power. She is backed up by Senator Kate Cheney from Western Australia. But we'll start with Senator David Pocock. You probably know him. He's a former football star and a committed climate activist. And he was shocked when he realised how the lobbyists operate. The the biggest eye-opener for me has been around lobbying. Like, it is just outrageous. Um, there are 1,900 people with sponsored passes. So as a parliamentarian, I can give... All of you, uh, you know, a sponsored pass. If I've known you for 12 months and if I haven't, you can provide a supporting letter. 
and you can access the building 24 seven, uh, do whatever lobbying you want. And there's currently 1900 people who we've got no idea who they are. Separately, you've got the lobbyist register, which is the loosest arrangement you can imagine. It's, it's not even, you know, you look at the US, UK, you can have civil criminal penalties if you break the lobbying um, code of conduct. Here, the worst that can happen to you is that you get stood down from lobbying for three months, like have a three month holiday, mate, and then you can get back at it. Like it is, it's just ridiculous. Um, so I, you know, I think there's a, there's a huge amount of work to do on, on all fronts. Um, and I know there's various crossbenches sort of working on, on different, just different aspects of it. Here's Senator Monique Ryan from Kuyong. Mr Speaker, the corridors of this House are roamed by lobbyists, given free reign to talk to whichever politicians they please. Too often they are close and old friends of some of our ministers and staffers, hired because of their personal connections and useful to corporate interests because they open doors that 99.9 .9 of Australians will never have access to. This is a broken system. The most powerful people in our country spend vastly more time speaking to employees of lobbying firms than they do to people on JobSeeker, to tradies, to students, to small business people or to refugees. Lobbying firms and powerful corporations are experts at political persuasion. They've figured out how to turn politicians' personal relationships into profit, and the, the loser is the Australian people. Public servants and elected representatives must act with integrity, transparency and honesty. In recent decades in Australia, we've seen access and influence skew increasingly to the interests of businesses and powerful individuals. Lobbying aims to influence government decisions such as policymaking, legislation, procurement and grants. Over the last 30 years, commercial lobbying in Australia has grown into a lucrative multi-billion dollar a year industry. It's hard to think that industry and those private interests don't expect a return on their massive investment. Responsibility for monitoring lobbyists' activities in Parliament House lies with the Attorney-General's Department, but this is a toothless system. The penalty for any breach of the code is deregistration from the register, but no fine a punishment approximately as severe as being whacked about the face with a tissue. Ministerial and staffer diaries are an invaluable accountability mechanism. They help the public know who has access to our ministers, and they help to know those interests, issues of interest to those who do have access to the ministers. We should know who about the timing, the frequency and the nature of representations made to ministers and senior staffers by lobbyists. Ministerial and staffer salaries are paid by public funds. It is difficult to conceive of any rational basis for refusing publication of those diaries. Another integrity concern is former politicians, senior political staff and high-ranking government officials leaving office then taking on related roles in the private sector and lobbying on behalf of their new employees, the so-called revolving door. One in four former ministers takes on a role with a senior in special interest group after leaving politics, and nearly 40 per cent of our registered lob federal lobbyists work for the government in some role before they became lobbyists. How cosy. And here's Senator Kate Cheney from Curtin in Western Australia. Access is uneven. Not all voices have the money to pay for a lobbyist. 
and activities that are not transparent can have a negative effect on policy making and public confidence in government. At the moment, some unregistered in-house lobbyists can wander the halls of parliament and walk unannounced into the offices of everyone from ministers to backbenchers to crossbenchers at any time, vastly increasing their ability to exert influence. As the Grattan Institute has observed, policy making can be distorted if some interests are consistently heard while others are not. The Honourable Anthony Wheelie KC, Chair of the Centre for Public Integrity, says it succinctly, lobbying has become a large unregulated industry. The revolving door sees MPs and ministers using their connections to further private interests. If you're employed directly by a company to influence government and, and policy rather than through a third party, you're not covered by any regulation. And if you can get a parliamentarian to authorise a sponsored APH access card, you can walk the halls of parliament freely. The UK and Canadian parliaments and the US Congress have legislated lobbying regimes rather than an administrative code of conduct. The law in those jurisdictions includes arrangements to allow scrutiny of passes granted by parliamentarians. Australia must follow this precedent, particularly in light of the fact that one anonymous parliamentarian in the 47th parliament has already signed off on 55 sponsored access passes. We have the right to know who is accessing our ministers and our executive. Reform should also include extending the cooling off period for former MPs and senior government officials to three years in keeping with international best practice rather than the 12 or 18 months we have here in Australia. I urge the government to consider these reforms to ensure that policy decisions are not unduly influenced by the loud voices of the powerful minority rather than the interests of the Australian public. We're talking about ecological thinning and subsidised longing, but we basically mean the same things, don't we, here? Wherever there are chemical corporations around the world, they're constantly trying to chip away at regulations. Earth Matters, bringing you environmental and social justice stories, from developments in government and industry to the campaigns and communities that are standing up to them. Earth Matters plays at 11am Sunday and 6.30am Wednesday. Turn your dial to 855am or listen online at 3cr.org.au. While the headlines have subsided, the nuclear power plant is still not under control, with the spent fuel rods removed from only one out of four reactors. Law needs to change so that uh, our rights can be recognised, so that decisions in relation to the use and exploitation of our lands is out. Munira Chowdhury is with Market Forces in Melbourne. She's here to tell us about Bangladesh. The General Electric Company is planning new gas plants that will be a climate disaster. And Market Forces has worked with artists on a, an art exhibition in America. It's called Electric Bangladesh, Fossil Free. Um, so welcome, Munira. Tell us about your involvement with this campaign and this art show. Market Forces had the honor of working with five leading Bangladeshi artists to make a really powerful exhibition come together in Boston, USA. The exhibition called on one of America's 
biggest and most iconic companies, General, General Electric or GE, to stop pushing new fossil fuel projects in Bangladesh. And what the artists really want to tell GE with their powerful pieces of work is for GE to end its plans with new fossil fuel projects and instead back renewable power instead. And the artworks themselves are really incredible. Um, one of the artworks, for example, is called Life on a GE Raft. And it depicts a family in Bangladesh that's escaping rising sea levels and flooding due to the climate catastrophes that Bangladesh is dealing with right now. And it's such a stark image because the raft that they're all sitting on looks like a GE power turbine. So it's really strong messages being sent to GE. Um, and another one, for instance, has like a red backdrop that shows chaos, which kind of depicts the climate emergency and the rising temperatures that we're dealing with right now. And on top of that, there are green block prints that show uh, wind turbines and it says 1.5 degrees Celsius. So it's a really beautiful piece of art that also shows hope and what the artists hope that GE would do and um, go ahead and back renewable power in Bangladesh instead of the climate breaking projects that GE is proposing right now. Uh, the artwork captured my attention uh, with simple words like GE go back and we don't approve. So tell us about the local people in Bangladesh, in the region called Chattagram, how's it impacting on them, the, the thought of a new GE plant or, you know, the local impact on their livelihood? I've actually recently been to the site where GE is proposing its gas power projects in Bangladesh. It's in a remote island in southeastern coastal zone in Bangladesh. And at that same location, there's a huge coal power plant under construction right now. And the devastation from the construction work of that project is really stark when you go to the site and really see it for yourself. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of families have had to relocate because of where the project is being built. Mm -hmm. A lot of people in the local communities have lost their traditional livelihoods uh, they used to be involved in shrimp and salt farming, and they've lost their jobs because of a new power plant being built in that area. And a local river on which thousands of fisher folk used to rely on for their livelihoods and to feed their family have been filled up due to the construction work. And so now they've lost uh, their old livelihoods and traditional ways of living. And we've also met with local community members and heard their testimonies directly. And the impact of the construction work of this massive uh, uh, fossil fuel project has been really significant. And they really fear that additional projects like the one that GE is proposing will make their lives and livelihoods worse. So, on top of the socioeconomic issues, on top of these human rights issues, where people are still reporting that they have not been compensated for their losses, there's also the concern around health and the direct impact of these fossil fuel projects that GE is proposing 
due to the air pollution in the local level. So um, there's a lot of fear among local community members and that there's a lot of opposition to projects like the ones that GE is proposing. Why is your government, the, is the Bangladeshi government, why are they permitting so much more fossil fuel, which will go into the future, into the 2050s, 2060s, it'll go on. Why are they permitting it? I think to answer that question, you kind of have to go a step back and look at who creates the power plan for Bangladesh. One of the interesting things have been that the Bangladesh's power master plan is created by a Japanese government agency and Japan kind of creates that fossil fuel reliant, has in the past created that fossil fuel reliant plan. And I think one of the biggest duties of the, uh, not duties, I would say, responsibilities of the companies like GE and other Japanese companies that are pushing forward with these fossil fuel projects is to instead invest in renewables and uh, take up more projects that are friendly for the environment and are clean, like solar and wind. Yeah. And that's a possibility for Bangladesh to transition to renewable energy. Even though it's so low-lying, I imagine the wind power isn't very good there, but um, are there any surveys or analysis that shows that it could be, um, you know, for all the industry that's in Bangladesh too, is, is, um, is it possible to have it sourced by renewable energy? There's actually a lot of studies that show that Bangladesh has huge renewable potential. Um, there's a study that shows that Bangladesh has, has a hundred percent, like hundred percent renewables is feasible for Bangladesh. And in fact, the US-based National Renewable Energy Lab um, has done research that shows massive potential for wind power in Bangladesh. And the Bangladesh government also um, has published studies that talk about the potential for solar energy. So there is, in fact, a lot of potential for um, renewable energy like wind and solar, as well as a lot of uptake already. It's happening at a smaller scale at community levels. And um, there's, a, there's a few proposals in the pipeline for larger scale wind and solar projects in Bangladesh. So there's already a lot of demand from the people of Bangladesh for clean, renewable energy. Yeah. Oh, well, thank you for telling us that. I, I really feel General Electric, who wants to keep its green reputation with its wind turbine business, it could make a huge profit still. We're not stopping it making the profit um, if it just did that transition. It's so interesting that it goes back to the Japanese period, the whole yeah, plan. Look forward rather than look backward, I'd say. So thank you very much for telling us that. Tell us a bit about the scale of GE. I've been trying to research and it just seems enormous, but they have a very green reputation that they want to keep going. And they're one of the world's largest wind turbine manufacturers. And they also have huge revenue from um, selling and maintaining gas turbines. And I believe that at the moment, Bangladesh's main electricity is from gas, natural gas, and then they want now this liquefied natural gas, natural gas, but it's, it's not natural gas, it's fossil gas, as we know, and it is already the, the standard form. It will be so easy for GE to be pushing or 
you know, helping adapt to the renewable energy, which is your country's aspiration. 40% by 2041 is the aspiration, renewable energy. So tell us about GE. It's a mega company. And I think most people can't really comprehend the scale and power of those companies. Yeah, so GE is one of the biggest companies in America. And next year, it's actually splitting up its power business. And the new company is called GE Vernova. And what's really interesting is that GE Vernova is trying to depict a really green image. And even the word Vernova means new green in Latin. And it really highlights GE's hypocrisy because just in Bangladesh and Vietnam, the company is proposing 25 gigawatts of new gas power projects. So you can see how the company GE Vernova is uh, giving out this image of, uh, you know, we're green. And if you visit their website, there's a lot of imagery around um, wind turbines, but in, in reality, they're, invest they're planning ahead with new fossil fuel projects in countries like Vietnam, Bangladesh, and elsewhere in the world. Yeah, well, what are the alternatives to Bangladesh? I know it's a very go-ahead country on climate and people have a high climate awareness there from people I've interviewed before. Um, what's the alternative? You know, at the government level, why are they allowing that? Um, I don't know if the contracts have all been signed, but why are they allowing a continuation of gas? So uh, with Bangladesh, what's really interesting is that the country already has an overcapacity. What that means is that the power generation ability is much higher than the demand. So already to start with energy experts, civil society and the general public are questioning the need for brand new gas power projects like the one the GE is proposing. And on top of that, in the last two years, the Bangladesh government has canceled more than 10 coal and gas power projects that it had previously planned. And the reason for these cancellations is concerned around climate, as well as the rising cost of importing these expensive fossil fuels like coal and gas. And so we're already seeing a massive shift away from fossil fuel dependency towards more renewable choices. And we're seeing a, a huge uptake of renewable projects as well, both solar and wind. So the people of Bangladesh want alternatives that are clean. They want alternatives that are good for their health, good for communities, the climate, and our future. Mm. Well, what does market forces say about this uh, GE Vernova project? I know the uh, International Energy Agency says that the role for fossil fuels, all of them, in energy is narrowing. I think that means the window has closed myself. I'd interpret it that way. Why is GE... What's market forces saying? I mean, are they risking anything to be going ahead with this massive, like say it again, the number of projects. You said it in gigawatts, but how many projects does that translate to? Like it's a lot, it, isn't it? It's about 10 large-scale gas power projects. Yeah. And GE is taking a huge financial risk by pushing ahead with these projects that they're proposing in Vietnam and Bangladesh. Um, just going back to what I was saying around the huge uptake of renewable energy in Bangladesh and Vietnam, there's a 
there's a high likelihood that the countries will choose renewable projects over what GE is proposing in their climate breaking gas power projects. And the people of Bangladesh deserve clean, breathable air. They deserve a safe future. And my hope is that the strong and resilient communities in Bangladesh get access to that clean and renewable energy and there are so many studies, Vivian, that show that Bangladesh has the potential for 100% renewable energy. And there's lots of studies done by um, uh, the US National Renewable Energy Lab that show a huge potential for wind power. And that's something that GE can tap into because they are one of the biggest wind turbine producers in the world. So they could really take this opportunity to invest in renewable projects and do it fast. Yeah. So market forces, uh, as I know it in Australia, seems to lobby shareholders, lobby banks, financial. It's all in that financial sector. Just tell us, if, you know, to pitch it to the listeners, what, um, what could they do about this? I would say to the listeners that you should really, if you have time, have a look at the artwork. It's up on our website. They're just beautiful pieces of work that send such a strong message to GE about what GE should be doing in terms of investment in renewables instead of climate breaking fossil fuel projects in Bangladesh. And you can also take action by sending a message to GE's new CEO who is in charge of making that decision. And would you give me the details for that? I can put it on the podcast webpage. I'll share the link. Okay, thank you. So, listeners, we've been talking to Munira Chowdhury from Market Forces. I'm really pleased to hear that Market Forces is in America as well. <clears throat> and they they beaver away where it really hurts in these big companies, where it hurts their reputation, their shareholders, the people who talk to them. Um, I th and I think it's it's very likely to to work. And the work, the artwork, is really beautiful. The absolutely handsome looking artists too. They look so beautiful. There, each with their little saying, um, comment about it. Have a look on the um, Climate Action 3CR website. You'll see or a link to that art and how you can take action. So thanks, Munira. Thanks for having me. Kajagurujan, Kanderman. This is Stephen Pigram from up Broomway, Yauru country. And it's great to be down in Melbourne and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio. Been here for a long time. Like everybody sort of knows that the dominant system is destroying the planet and therefore the, the ruling class's only solution is to leave the planet. I think it's up to us more than ever as people who believe in an alternative to advance to people this idea that there is a future. Um, you know, we often talk about uh, doing, traditionally the climate movement would be, you know, do this for your grandchildren. But I think we have to be more ambitious and, and learn from indigenous traditions where you know, mm -hmm. do this for seven generations down the road, do this for 10 generations, 100 generations. Like we should be taking these kinds of actions because we believe society should still exist um, in a thousand years, in a hundred thousand years. Like we should be the ones who are optimistic about the future. This song is by Jess Ribeiro, In Love With This Place. Who's gonna swim in the river? 
Good afternoon, this is 3CR Radio and you're listening to Simon Walker for the Climate Action Show. And with me today is Professor Suzanne Delevson, who is a professor in the Department of Mathematical Sciences at the University of Copenhagen. Her latest study, along with Professor Peter Delevson of the University of Copenhagen, warns of the fragility of the Atlantic Meridional Overturning Circulation, also known as the AMOC, or AMOC, which is a system of currents that circulates water within the Atlantic Ocean bringing warm water north and cold water south. It is an important component of Earth's climate system. Their findings suggest that the AMOC could collapse within this century, earlier than reports made by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, and will be a tipping point for disastrous effects on weather patterns, ecosystems and food security. Suzanne, thank you for being on the show with me today. Thank you for inviting me. So, um, from the get-go, you know, I feel like as... Um, we go forward and as climate change progresses, we're finding more um, outcomes, possible outcomes of, you know, of the effects that we're going to be having upon the earth. And for me personally, the Atlantic Meridional Overturning Circulation hasn't been something that has been a focus point or something that I've really thought about during climate change. And I'm sure that's 
probably quite the same for a lot of people around the globe. Would you be able to just talk to us a bit more about what the AMOC is and its importance in climate systems? Yes. So the uh, AMOC uh, is a pump that exchange heat from the tropical areas uh, to the north in the Atlantic Ocean. And it is a pump that is led by uh, temperature differences and by uh, salinity. And, uh, and it's because heavy water sinks. So from, uh, from the south are warm water brought up, and that is what makes uh, the whole Western Europe warmer than, uh, for example, it is in Canada or Alaska, um, because such a pump does not exist in the Pacific Ocean. Uh, and it does not exist in the Pacific Ocean because that ocean is less uh, salty. So this uh, pump actually has a huge influence on the uh, climate, especially in, in the tropical areas and in, 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 in Western Europe and in the South Arctic. So the whole Arctic uh, uh, Atlantic uh, area. But of course, it also has an influence of the on on the entire uh, uh, globe. Now um, we know that this uh, system has kind of two stable states, so it has an on mode and an off mode, uh, and we can see that from uh, from the ice ages where it seemed to jump between these two states uh, with a couple of thousand years in between. Now, we have been in the on state for more than 12,000 years. So we haven't seen a change uh, um, since the ice ages. So you could, in a certain sense, say that it's a natural thing of if you look on a really, really long time scale. But that is not what we think we are seeing now. It's not a natural change. It is a change brought by uh, uh, the climate changes, by uh, global warming. What is happening is that global warming makes more uh, ice melt, especially the, the Greenland ice sheet. And this uh, flow in of fresh water makes the water less salty, it makes it less heavy, and then it doesn't sink. So you, you can imagine that the warm water comes up in the surface, and then uh, uh, at some point it becomes uh, heavy and sink uh, around the south of, of Greenland. And then it flows back the cold water and cools uh, the tropical areas. So uh, you, uh, this will have a huge impact, especially because we have based our whole society in agriculture and um, um, civilization on the fact of being in the on mode. So it will be a serious uh, impact if it collapses on humanity. So how long have we witnessed the circulation slowing down? How long you know, have we been warned about this? So, so first of all, I should say that the, our study uh, is based on kind of indirect measurements because uh, in order to see that it is changing, you need a long record. You need to know how it was uh, before we started global warming. So we are analyzing a data series that's 150 years old, which is uh, um, the sea surface temperature in a specific area south of Greenland. Uh, and we are not the first one to use that. So it is thought to be a fingerprint of uh, these AMOC. 
Uh, and if this is the uh, a fingerprint, it has been seen to be weakening. There are more direct measurements. Of course, we wanted to have more direct measurements where you can actually trust more what, what, what you're seeing. But the problem is that these measurements has only been done for the last 20 years. It needs highly modern technology and we do not have historic data. So uh, uh, we can measure whatever we want now maybe, but we cannot measure in the past if we didn't do it. So we need these uh, uh, indirect measurements to say something. So what we did was uh, to, to take uh, these fingerprints, what is called that others has also uh, declared as being fingerprints and then analyze these data to see the evolution. And many people are agreeing that uh, it is weakening. That it is weakening does not mean that it will collapse. Uh, necessarily. So it has these two states and the level can change a little bit. Um, so we did not look at the level, actually. We looked at uh, at something different. We looked at how much it varied. So in pre-industrial times, it had a, a specific distribution that we could analyze because uh, we had these 50 years of data. And then we looked at how that distribution changed. So um, uh, this is uh, the terms that we call uh, uh, loss of resilience and critical slowing down. These are kind of technical terms. Uh, but uh, to, to, to talk about one of them, it is uh, the variance that is increasing. So you can imagine that, um, that for example, if you uh, see a child trying to learn to bike, and then you sent the bike off uh, with a child on and everything seems to go well. Uh, then if you start seeing that the bike starts wobbling and going from, 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 from side to side more, more strongly, that is an indicator that the child is about to fall. So we could call the falling of the bike a tipping point. So we think that this system has a tipping point. And the tipping point is a not an irreversible, but on a slow on on a short time scale, it is irreversible. So it, it will be uh, it can be reversed, but it takes a lot of 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 work to to reverse it. So you could think about this falling of the child uh, on the bike like being uh, um, this tipping point where you really have to go and pick up the child and and put it up again. It's not enough that the child. It keeps on trying to to balance once it is on on the ground. The the the, the bike will not come up again. Yeah. So these early warning signals is what we are using to uh, analyze uh, that it is changing, and also that it is changing towards such a tipping point. Okay, but there's still a chance to restabilize before we get to the tip. Yes, yes, we definitely think so. So our that is also something that has been a little uh, overinterpreted and misunderstood in the press. We have had a lot of, of, of press uh, um, interest about this. So our prediction is based on what we call business as usual. And business as usual here means that our greenhouse gas emissions continues growing in the way that they have done previously. So we are not saying that this will happen as soon as we say, 
if we are able to uh, uh, stop the greenhouse gas emissions. So it, it is not an, an a prediction of something that will happen whatsoever. It does depend on on our actions uh, on 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 the human made global warming, and that comes because. Of course, the greenhouse gases does not influence directly this uh, AMOC. It is influenced by the fact that it makes global warming and global warming makes more melt off uh, on the ice. That means more fresh water inflow. And when the water gets uh, uh, less salty, at some point it might not sink. And if it does not sink the, uh, 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 south of Greenland, uh, then this pump will stop and we will not have this heat exchange. And it means that the South will be, or, or, the, or the tropical areas, areas will be warmer because they cannot get rid of the warm that they have. And probably Western Europe will be colder. Okay. Yeah, I, I, I hear what you're saying. You know, there's so many, we, we tend to focus on the direct factors when it comes to understanding climate change, but there's so many interconnected factors that come into it as well that we haven't really yeah. fully discovered yet. And as the climate gets warmer, we'll probably discover them over the easy way or the hard way. Do you think yeah. that um, this particular issue is getting the attention that it deserves? Uh, okay, so I would probably have said something different five days ago, but I mean, the, we have had so much attention. Uh, I, I nearly think we've had maybe too much attention for, for, for the last couple of days because our study is just one study. Mm. And, and of course... <laughs> we need more studies so we need more studies to understand it better and then you could say climate changes do 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 the climate changes have had the attention that it deserves yes and no i mean there are lots of intention a lot of discussion but there are also a lot of not acting so our best advice is that we have to do really drastic measures to reduce greenhouse gases but i mean that is not only for the amon it's also for the global warming and all the things that we are seeing now, all the extreme events that we're seeing all over the globe is not because of the weakening of the AMOC. That has nothing to do with that. I mean, the weakening of the AMOC now is just something that we very carefully can measure because we know that this is a very important player in the climate and it could collapse. But the effect that we are seeing is for global warming. Yeah. So, so, so uh, there's no doubt that our our our, uh, our world is bleeding we need yeah. to do something uh, so so in that sense it has a lot of attention but not obviously not attention enough since not enough is being done so yeah. from the political side they're still missing something and 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 most i mean many politicians are talking like they do want to do something and i also uh appreciate that it is difficult mm. so we live in a political reality uh but i think this if, if you think about I, I mean many people have also said that but if you think about the crisis with the covid 19 it was amazing to see what we were able to do as a world as a society i, I know it was very different what different countries did and how they acted uh, and how they um, coped with the disease but at least we saw that many, many countries could change things that we just a couple of months before had thought impossible, that we had thought it's just not realistic. It's just not something you can do in a modern society. And we could. 
and we could and we could also find a lot of money for doing things and and, and, and all this and i just think that it's incredible now we have this climate crisis which is so much larger than covid 19 and much less is being done i mean it's discussed a lot and it has probably something to do with the fact that it feels like some 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 slower catastrophe uh, falling upon us so it always feels like we have enough time well we can discuss a little more we can see whereas the covid-19 was like it's now we have to do something now yeah absolutely but yeah I think it is it's, now i think the climate crisis now so yeah, we have to definitely do now. now um yeah i understand you you're trying to get across that we don't fully know what's going to happen with the amoc just yet but you know you're not saying that because of yeah. the planet is getting warmer it doesn't mean it necessarily will collapse but it is good to look at these potential outcomes and understand the worst case scenario um, yeah. for, for if it does happen. Uh, is, yeah, we're coming back to the global warming part. Is if, do you think there's anything that people could do at this point to try and um, spread more awareness about this potential outcome? I think... Um, well, I think if... One thing, I mean, I think every one of us should do what we can on a personal level. I don't think that uh, change, I mean, each little action that we do as individuals will, of course, not change anything in the big picture, uh, but it can change if if we as, if, 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 if it, there will be, a, let's say, a movement of, of changing that will also influence politicians, etc. One thing that struck me was that I, I, I was uh, uh, um, partly host on a, on a thing we did in, in, in Denmark where we uh, invited the uh, industry, different uh, um, big players in the industry, um, together with scientists to ask these uh, companies so what they were doing and what they needed from science to actually make a, a, a change. And what's, what, what, what was very striking was that these companies already did very much. I mean, of course, we had invited specific ones and they were also uh, uh, rather big companies. And I think for small companies, it could be very difficult because uh, uh, you, you might not have the muscles for doing uh, uh, something. But it, it, it struck me how... Um, how big part of, of, of the industry that is actually trying to make a move now uh, and, and, and actually also seem like they are more, more forward going than the governments. Um, and, and that gives me hope. It, it really does. Also because if, if, if these changes can happen as, let's say a popular movement, among people, but also among industry, private actors, uh, um, and, and also there are governments and politicians that are trying to do things. So, it, but, but it will be a push and it will also be much easier. It will be much easier for politicians to do strong measures if there is a clear uh, um, popular uh, um, backup of, of, of this. I mean, I also think that, that it is very important that we understand that we cannot face this crisis without doing sacrifices, any one of us. So, I mean, especially in the Western world, I mean, we cannot continue the way we are living and, 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 and it's naive to think 
that we can reverse uh, this just uh, uh, with, without paying any, uh, without doing any sacrifices. Suzanne, thank you very much for speaking with me today. Uh, you're welcome. Thank you for having me in. This is 3CR Radio. You're listening to Simon Walker on the Climate Action Show. And I've just been speaking with Suzanne DeLevson on the Atlantic Meridional Overturning Circulation and its potential collapse as climate change continues. I just want to reiterate what Suzanne said in the interview. Um, the collapse of the circulation is not something that we know for sure is going to happen. It's just a potential. Um, we just don't we don't have the facts yet to say that it that it will happen. So, you know, it, it's still one of those things that we do have to consider as a worst case scenario of what could happen as we continue to warm the planet. And I don't know if, about people listening at home, but when I think back 10 to 15 years ago, the image of climate change, or at least the image that polluting companies wanted us to think of climate change, was just a polar bear sitting on a small island of ice as it slowly melts from underneath it. And as distressing as that image is itself, it's quite overwhelming to see actually how much more global warming is and what it is becoming. And there's so many more interconnecting factors, so many more impacts, so much more damage that could be done. I don't want to spread any more climate anxieties, and I hope you feel motivated to get out there and act more. And it's important for people to understand how much climate change is going to directly affect them. And the more we spread that awareness, the better we will be for it. Thank you very much. Three CR Community Radio, eight five five AM. Please listen now to Antonio Gutierrez, the Secretary General of the United Nations, with a new offer: the Climate Solidarity Pact. Limiting the rise in global temperature to 1.5 degrees Celsius is still possible. We must consider this as a moment of hope. But it will require carbon emissions to be cut by 45% by 2030. To help get us there, I have proposed the Climate Solidarity Pact, in which all big emitters would make extra efforts to cut emissions and wealthier countries supporting emerging economies to do so. And I have put forward an acceleration agenda to supercharge these efforts. I urge governments to make it happen by eating fast forward on their net zero deadlines so that developed countries commit to reach net zero as close as possible to 2040 and emerging economies as close as possible to 2050. And developed countries must abide by their commitments on finance, adaptation, and loss and damage. All of this action must be global, it must be immediate, and it must start with the polluted heart of the climate crisis, the fossil fuel industry. Let's face facts. The problem is not simply fossil fuel emissions. It's fossil fuels, period. The solution is clear. The world must phase out fossil fuels in a just and equitable way. 
moving to leave oil, coal and gas in the ground where they belong and massively boosting renewable investment in a just transition. And now here's a bonus about Bangladesh and what kind of climate action they're taking there. I'm talking to Munira Chowdhury from Market Forces in Melbourne, and she has a lot of experience of Bangladesh, and I want to know about the climate awareness. I've heard it's very high. Dr. Salim Ulhaq told us that every COP um, meeting, all those talks at COP, which we ignore pretty much here in Australia, they're all broadcast in Bangladesh or on TV, and there's a great discussion about climate change. So can you tell us what the climate action scene is like? The people of Bangladesh are really leading action on climate. And one of the biggest reasons behind that is because the it, the climate action is forefront for the people of Bangladesh. The impacts of climate are being felt right now. It's not something in the future that uh, people are anticipating to happen. There's extreme weather conditions that are getting worse and worse because of rising temperatures related to climate change. And every year there are devastating climate impacts, but what's really beautiful is the resilience of the people of Bangladesh and the leadership that they're taking on in climate action, not just from a really small community level where they are coming up with ideas on how to deal with the everyday effect of climate change on their homes, on their livelihoods, but also at a global scale where they're talking about the uh, impact of climate change on the people of Bangladesh due to the rising global emissions around the world and what should be done. And it's every day front and center where we're calling on fossil fuel companies around the world to stop their plans for new fossil fuel projects. We're calling on, on a phase out of existing fossil fuel projects. Um, so the people of Bangladesh are really doing a lot of work uh, behind the scenes and um, more publicly as well to take climate action. Tell me about some of that public action. I mean, do they have the Extinction Rebellion type of approach, direct action. Um, we've talked before about this art exhibition, which is a very beautiful way of influencing people's minds, but also about the media. What's the media? Um, is it at all rebellious against this the status quo we've got now, which is more and more emissions and more and more exports of fossil fuels in, a, in Australia's case? Are they critical, say, of Australia for exporting coal and gas all the time? In terms of the media, there's obviously a lot of reporting around the impacts of climate change on Bangladesh and fossil fuels. Right now with Australia, there's, uh, at least I don't know of any involvement directly uh, from Australia exporting gas to Bangladesh. Um, but in terms of what should happen is, you know, any governments around the world should really support Bangladesh to shift away from fossil fuel dependency towards renewable projects and uh, help Bangladesh with the technology and the finance to be able to invest in these projects that would create a safer climate and a safer future for us. So what's, what's the media coverage of climate change there? Is it more than in Australia, would you say? 
the consciousness of climate? The climate consciousness for the general public, I would say, is, is really high. It's because with um, the people of Bangladesh have had to deal with climate-related impacts for so long, and it's getting worse every year, unfortunately, with um, extreme weather getting worse and worse every year, you know, cyclones getting more extreme, um, the impact it's having on people and their daily livelihoods is getting worse every year. Although um, the initiative taken by the people of Bangladesh to deal with these have also become better over the years. Yeah, I know the adaptation. I heard, again, Dr. Salimul Haq say to us, oh, when there were floods in Germany, he said, I think we would have something to teach them about protecting people, being prepared. And he's told me about, you know, taking villages up to higher ground with their cattle, with their some of their livestock and children going out with loud handlers, millions of them, and warning people, you know, the cyclone's coming and leading elderly people who need a bit of help up to the places where there is protection. So he was very proud to tell me the number of people who die now in a cyclone. Uh, you told me uh, over 100 in um, Cyclone Mocha this year, but, you know, in previous years, it would be thousands of people who would die just every time there was one of those cyclones. And he was so proud to tell me, you know, this proactive approach. And that's what I'm, I think we should take leadership from a country that's not because they're in the front line, but it's because they've taken a positive can-do attitude to it. Whereas I feel in Australia, we, we're rather surprised by climate events. You know, we're contributing to them. And then floods in Lismore, it's left to people next door to come and help you in their little boat to come and rescue you from the roof it's the government response and the organized response is very piecemeal and slow yes there is so much to learn from the people of bangladesh and how they've been dealing with um, climate related impacts i mean you can also see a lot of farming practices have changed over time. There's a lot of um, uptake of hydroponic farming because of the rising water levels uh, there's been a shift in the way and the modes of farming as well uh, due to salt water coming in due to rising sea levels as well. So there's a lot of adaptation work being going on in Bangladesh that the rest of the world could learn from. Yeah. Well, thank you for talking to me, Munira. Um, I wish luck to your market forces campaign to get the uh, General Electric Company to stop pushing gas, more gas, into uh, Bangladesh and Vietnam. But I, th I think what you're doing is terrific. And thank you for telling us, you know, just connecting us a little bit with Bangladesh. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to the Climate Action Radio Show. My warmest thanks to our guests, Munira Chowdhury from Market Forces, Professor Suzanne Ditlevson from University of Copenhagen, and to Simon Walker, who produced that interview to Antonio Gutierrez at the United Nations, and to Senators Ryan, Pocock and Cheney in Parliament House, Canberra. Thanks also to the Climate Council for their fine webinars. Check out links on the notes for the podcast. My name is Vivian Langford. Good night and good luck. This is coal. Don't be afraid. The Don't treasure. be scared. It's coal. It's coal. Tune in every Monday at 5pm 
And it must start with the polluted heart of the climate crisis, the fossil fuel industry. 